Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and Elystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Remember, Lystra was the city where Paul had been stoned a few years earlier. Now he's returning, and he found the seeds that he had planted in the ministry were sprouting. And among the fruit of Paul's effort was a Jewish woman married to a Gentile. She was a believer and had a son named Timothy who would become very close to Paul. So close that Paul wrote two letters to him as Timothy was pastor in a church, which we know as First and Second Timothy. And Paul refers to Timothy frequently in his writings. Verse 2. He, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Apparently he had a good reputation among the brothers in the area. It's nice to have believers who you can trust and others trust as well. And we need more believers like this with a good witness for Jesus. It's frustrating when you can't trust your own brothers. Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul saw something in Timothy that made him want Timothy to accompany him on his journey. I'm not sure of the age difference, but Paul saw that Timothy was younger in the Lord, and he was willing to leave town and go with Paul. Paul just latched onto him. Now in chapter 15, remember the division over the Gentiles and the Jews. It concluded with the apostles and the elders declaring that the Gentiles didn't need to undergo circumcision, that the Holy Spirit was given to anyone based on their faith alone. But here Paul is telling Timothy to get circumcised. What's up with that? Well, people knew Timothy's father was a Greek or a Gentile, and having Timothy with him on his journey going into the synagogues and preaching to the Jews, if Timothy was not circumcised, it created a whole lot of drama that Paul didn't need. He already had enough as it was. So Timothy underwent circumcision, not for the spiritual reasons, rather just to avoid unwanted conflict. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So that council of Jerusalem in chapter 15, the Jews and the Gentiles are one in Christ. There's no distinction, and there needs to be no Jewish observance of the law by the Gentiles. They take that message, and they spread it. This message in our time, it really doesn't seem like that big a deal, but it was huge back then. It was a radical shift of thought. So the Gentile believers would be very excited about this. I'm not so sure on the Jewish side of things, but the Gentiles, they wouldn't have to become Jewish. They wouldn't have to go through all that stuff. They would be welcomed into the family of God because God loves them and doesn't require them to do all this stuff. And unfortunately, in churches today, we see that if you want to be part of our church, you need to do some things, you know, and that's just not the way that the church operates. Believe in Jesus. He will tell you what you need to do. Verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. The news from Jerusalem encouraged the believers and strengthened them in the faith. And Jews and Gentiles can now have fellowship together. They can pray together. They can eat together. They can study scripture together, worship together, unity among the family of God, a great thing. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul talking when he's in prison again, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. It's so cool when you get brothers and sisters together who have unity, and they put aside their trivial beliefs in things that don't matter, and they focus on Jesus. It's amazing. Verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia 
and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So if you have a map of Paul's missionary journeys, you can find them in the back of a study Bible, or if you have Bible software like eSword, which I use, and I'm not sponsored by them, but it's a great free resource, you can download a bunch of maps of the biblical era, the different locations and the countries and stuff. It's very helpful. And you can see the area that we know as Turkey today, and this is the area where many of Paul's journeys would take him. Phrygia and Galatia were regions in the middle of modern Turkey. So Paul was making his rounds, visiting the cities where he had previously preached the gospel in, but now the Holy Spirit forbids Paul to go to Asia, and Asia in the scriptures is an area of Turkey above Phrygia and Galatia. It's not the Asia that we think of today. So the Holy Spirit prevents Paul from continuing to preach in that area because the Holy Spirit has another assignment for Paul. Verse 7, And when they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So another region in this area. Paul and his companions are now beyond the cities that they had ministered to in their first journey. So they're pushing west. They're going to go out and spread the word, and the Holy Spirit is leading them. But the places they want to go, the Holy Spirit's like, no, 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 we're not going there. The cities that they were interested in going to were on the way, but they were not in God's plan at that time. It's an important lesson for us to learn. Things seem right for us, and God's like, the timing is not right. Do what I say. And we have a tendency of going, no, this looks right, not knowing that it's not God's plan. Verse 8, so passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. So they land at Troas, which is on the east coast of the Aegean Sea. Across the sea was Macedonia, or what we now call Greece. So they're just kind of in a holding pattern here in Troas, probably wondering what they're doing, but they can't go any further west because that's the water. Verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So that night, Paul gets a vision of this Macedonian man pleading with him to come and help him. That's Pretty much all we know about this vision, but to Paul, this was a clear message from God. Verse 10, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So now the writer starts using the first person. It said, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, Luke is now joining the Apostle Paul. So the writer of the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke connects with Paul at this time. Paul was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. That means that he was expecting to hear from him. Drawing close to God, praying, keeping our hearts and minds focused on the Lord, you get sensitive to the Spirit, and God will speak to you in that still, small voice, or in a vision like this. And Paul was able to discern this vision was legitimately from God. He knew it. It's like, yeah, this is obvious. I get it. So now, very far from home, he ventures beyond the world he is used to and enters the unknown. Verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. So, Samothrace, or however you say that, is an island in the northern area of the Aegean Sea between Troas and Neapolis. And so, Neapolis is on the mainland of Macedonia. The following day, now they land in Macedonia, they're at Neapolis, verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So here Luke is saying they went from Neapolis, apparently not a lot happened there. So Paul lands on Macedonian soil, and he's like, okay, what's going on? And apparently it wasn't happening in Neapolis, so they go to Philippi. Philippi was a noteworthy city. 
It was a Roman colony, which meant it was a very important and powerful city. It was named after Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, and the Romans there were very patriotic. There was a lot of military there. Um, It was a very Roman city. Not only that, it was a colony. Now, Roman citizenship during this time was very important. It meant you had all the rights afforded by the Roman government. You were protected against unfair incarcerations, trials, etc., And Paul was a Roman citizen, and this plays into his experience in this great city. Verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So there were not a lot of Jews in the city. If there were, they would have had a synagogue. And apparently they had no synagogue, because on the Sabbath they're going down to the river, supposing that that's a place of prayer. They probably got wind of it. And scholars say that if there were ten Jewish men present in a city that would constitute enough to form a synagogue, but apparently they didn't have 10 Jewish men or 10 worthy Jewish men. So Paul goes to the river searching for a place to spend the Sabbath day, and he finds some women gathered there, but apparently no men. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul says. So Paul was speaking to the women, and there was one who God opened her heart to hear what Paul was saying. And in my life as an unbeliever, I heard preachers ranting on Sundays because as a kid, I would get up on Sundays hoping to find a cartoon on TV back in the 70s and the 80s. Saturday mornings were spent watching cartoons. On Sundays, in my town with three stations, there were only preachers on TV, and they were weird. But I did listen to a few of them for a few minutes. I don't recall what they said, but ultimately I turned the channel and... But I did give them a couple minutes at least before I turned the channel. This is before remote controls where you actually had to turn the channel knob on the TV or the tube as we called it. But later in life I started going to church but really didn't listen to the minister's message because it was boring. And then in 94 I visited a Bible teaching church and God totally opened my heart like Lydia. And I heard the word. It made sense. I was eager to hear more. So I can totally relate to her because that happened to me. It was my time. And Lydia was a seller of purple goods. So simple explanation, purple clothing was very expensive. So she was probably pretty wealthy. Verse 16, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia believes she's baptized as well as her whole household. She invites Paul to stay and convince Paul and his companions to stay with her. They have no place to stay, so God provides a place to stay. So you can see God's on the move. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Now here's where the story gets interesting. Paul and Silas were on their way back to the place where they had prayed, and they encountered a demon-possessed slave woman. She apparently was good at fortune-telling, or deception, because that's how the devil works, and made a lot of money. But she was a slave. So her owners, notice the plural, two owners at least, they got the money. Apparently they were business partners. So in the spirit realm, the demonic spirits recognized Paul as having the Holy Spirit. We can't see this visually, but they can. And they targeted him. Verse 7, and she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now Paul and Silas, as well as the rest of his traveling companions, had been sent to Macedonia by the Holy Spirit. 
There was no advertising. There was no scheduled performances or anything of that sort. They were just there, Jews from Israel hanging out in a very proud Roman city where there's not a lot of Jews. So why would this slave woman be advertising for Paul? Well, this is another one of the devil's counterattacks. God's doing something cool in Macedonia, and the devil wants to trash it. So she's creating a scene. And the people around her, they knew her. They knew she was a successful fortune teller. city wasn't that big. So they would likely look at Paul and Silas and say, Who are you and where are you from? Why are you getting this attention from this gal? This is not Paul's way of sharing the gospel. So she's drawing all this attention to him. He's like, you know, this gal's irritating me. Verse 18, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, notice the Spirit he addresses, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So she continues to follow them around for many days, making a scene. Paul makes his move. He commands the Spirit to leave her, and it did. You know, the devil is subject to God as we are. He's not God's equal. Rather, a creation of God who chose, like Adam, to ignore God and do his own thing. As a result, he was removed from his place in heaven and allowed to roam the earth trying to find people to destroy. He is allowed to do this so we may be tempted and make our own choice to obey God or not. And when we don't obey God, the devil will lead us wherever he can to ruin us. On the way, we can recognize our need for God and cry out to him, realizing that he's the only way out of the devil's clutches. It's my opinion. So God allows the devil to do certain things. He's limited in what he can do. But I believe he's allowed to do these things to drive us to Christ. So here, this woman is allowed to pester and bring a lot of attention to Paul, and he finally has enough and orders the spirit to leave. Now, she's liberated, not punished. So a lot of times we look at this story, I think, and we say, you know, that evil woman, yeah, you know, well, she's liberated from the evil that's within her. And I wonder if she may have been one of those in Macedonia crying out to God for help. Whether or not she was, she was now free of that spirit. Verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So the owners are incensed. They're likely Roman citizens who knew the city well and the legal process. So they drag Paul and Silas and the rest of them, the foreigners, to the magistrates, really annoyed that these men would come to their proud city and create problems. This was a place where Rome was honored and Roman law respected. Pax Romana, may have heard of that before, the peace of Rome was something that was very important to the Romans. They had peace. Yeah, it was a peace brought about by cruelty and, in some cases, oppression, but it was peace. And they liked that. They liked to have peace. It's like we like peace. And now these Jews are here screwing everything up. Verse 20, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. Verse 21, They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. What? (laughs) What's their crime? They're not even specific. The only thing they did was ruin their employee and their hope for profit. But we don't know what they're talking about here, but they're making stuff up and inciting the crowd. In verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now, Paul and Silas are likely recognizable as Jews. There were Jews in Macedonia, and Paul and Silas' appearance and dress was likely very different from the Romans that were in the city. And since they were Jews and foreigners, nobody imagined that they were Roman citizens. So they treated them like everyone else that was not a Roman citizen. No rights, no fair trial, no nothing, except a swift sentence, which was carried out immediately. So Paul and Silas go to Macedonia at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. They meet one woman whose family receives the Lord. They deliver a demon-possessed fortune teller. 
and now they are sentenced by the magistrates to be beaten, and beaten badly. They didn't just beat you lightly, they beat you to make a point. This was not only their punishment for causing problems, but also served as a reminder to anyone who wanted to do the same thing. You don't mess with Rome. Verse 23, And when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So in addition to being beaten, they get thrown in jail. You get online and search for the Philippian jail remains, and you can see pictures of this jail in that ancient city. Verse 24, Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So it's like maximum security. No light, obviously no electricity, no plumbing, and they're chained. Welcome to Macedonia, Paul. Verse 25, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So instead of whining about their situation, they're praying and singing hymns to God. This didn't mean they were happy. Rather, they were calling out to the one who listens. Listen to the Psalm of David. Psalm 34, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord within me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. That's the Psalm of David, Psalm 34. Paul's doing the same thing. They're praying and singing to God. The prisoners are listening to him, and it appears that the prisoners were not the only ones listening to him. Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So an earthquake hits Philippi. The foundations of the prison were shaken, popping open the doors and breaking their chains. Verse 27, And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So this guy's sleeping on the job. He wakes up only to find that on his watch, all the prisoners escaped. That's a bad day. The Romans didn't like prisoners escaping from their prisons. The person in charge would be promptly executed in this case. So the jailer decides, you know what, I might as well kill myself. Why wait? It would be a lot easier and faster than facing my bosses. Probably better for my family too. You know, I'm be drug through all this stuff. He gets woke up. He's freaking out. He's ready to kill himself. And then in verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So Paul's speaking on behalf of everyone. He tells the guy that no one has escaped and not to harm himself. He shows this guy mercy. Think about what would happen if we were in that situation. I just got beaten for no reason, thrown into a stinky, raunchy jail to the inner part, to the lowest of the low, and I'm down there with all these people for no reason, and God pops the doors open, and this guy's going to kill himself, you know, one of the Romans there in the governmental system. Man, it'd be easy to just say, you know, we do whatever we want, man. But if we're operating in the Spirit, like Paul was in the Spirit, we would likely do the same thing, because that's the Holy Spirit working. The Holy Spirit loved this guy. Paul didn't know him, but the Holy Spirit did. Verse 29, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So (laughs) the jailer at this time is probably so freaked out over the earthquake and almost dying that he's a mess. And he comes to Paul and is probably crying over this whole episode, being so shook up, and he falls before them. Now, the jail was probably not that big. 
I don't think the Romans had a overcrowding problem in their jails because of the swift and harsh punishment they would dish out. Either people would stay in line and not do the things that are bad or they'd be executed. So it's possible that the jailer heard Paul and Silas at some point singing and praising God and was impacted by this. And then when the jail was rocked by the earthquake, the jailer probably understood uh, this is divine and somehow related to Paul and Silas. And so he comes in and he falls down before them. Verse 30, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Interesting, the word sirs there is kurios. It's the same word we call Jesus for Lord. The jailer saw salvation in Paul and Silas. He didn't know exactly what he saw, but he saw something that impacted him, and he knew that they were right with God, and he was not. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And this is probably too simple for the jailer to believe, like many people today, especially in the church. You know, they have a hard time with this. All we need to do is to believe. That's too easy. I need to clean up my act first and then come to God. No, you need to repent and trust Jesus and you'll be saved. The jailer had already repented. That's obvious. He was so scared that he was probably repenting for things that he didn't even do. So part of this was already taken care of. Now you got to believe and trust in God fully. So Paul had a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit too, that this guy's family was going to come to faith in Jesus. So he prophesied and said that his family would be saved as well. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So Paul shares with this guy's family. Verse 33, and he, the jailer, took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So Paul and Silas are ministering to this guy and his family. They're still bleeding from the beating they took earlier. So the jailer cleaned them up and they had a nighttime baptism. That must have been pretty cool. Verse 34, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So now the jailer takes Paul and his company home. Now, how many prison guards would take inmates to their house? You know, who does that? Well, God does that. God makes things happen that are amazing. God does a great work in this man's life and in his family, but he's still in custody. So I wonder what would happen if the magistrates discovered Paul and Silas at the jailer's house that night. <laughs> Your Honor, we were just over at the jailer's house, and uh, those guys you had beaten and thrown in jail, yeah, they're up there having dinner with them. That would be awkward. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. So now the magistrates send their officials to the jail with the command to release them. They got a good whooping. They've got their warning. They won't mess with us again. Verse 36, and the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. So the jailer's probably still elated if this is the same jailer. I don't know if he had a shift change or what, but if it is, he was probably still elated. Hey, Paul, you guys come on out now go in peace, man. Verse 37. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. (laughs) So Paul says something very unexpected. He says, not so fast, bro. See, these guys are in trouble. We are Roman citizens, and they violated our Roman rights as citizens by beating us and imprisoning us before we had a trial. They carried out an unjust sentence upon uncondemned Romans. You think the jailer was nervous when the earthquake hit? He now gets to tell the officials that the magistrates, they broke the law. Rome would not look kindly upon a magistrate who abused an innocent citizen. That would be like committing an act of treason in Rome. So Paul said, let them come to this stinky, disgusting jail far below their standard of living and meet us and they can escort us out. Now, he probably didn't say it condescendingly. He probably just said, hey, you know what? Let them come take us out. 
The magistrates wanted to make an example of Paul and Silas and his company, and now Paul is going to make an example out of the magistrates, but he's going to do it with mercy. Verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens, and they should have been, because they ran the risk of receiving the same punishment they dished out and losing their jobs, or perhaps even execution for what they did. Verse 39, so they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So just think of the jailer, what he's going through. Here's a scandal that he witnessed. They probably offered him a bribe or a promotion to keep quiet or something like that. We don't know. But I can't imagine after Paul and Silas left that they all went back to work like nothing had happened. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul apparently did not ask or demand anything of these men. If anything, he probably refused a bribe from them. Again, he's led by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul writes later to the believers in Rome. He would not write these things if he was not an example, which he was. Romans 12, verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And Paul modeled this perfectly when he left Philippi. He came at the command of God. He suffered and left without reviling those who persecuted him. Man, that's the Holy Spirit in action. Thank you.